I'm Tim Gombis, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I respond to some feedback from previous discussions. I talk about one of my all-time favorite books, and I share some thoughts about the character of evangelical fears of critical race theory, why there is nothing there to fear, and why critical theory resonates profoundly with a Christian approach to thinking about the Bible and culture. So first, I want to respond to a great question that I received uh, just the other day, and I just love this one. It was so, I just cracked up when I got it. Uh, Love uh, an email like this. I received this email from Mark, uh, with whom I've gone back and forth a bit over the last uh, bunch of weeks uh, since I've been doing this. Uh, And he says this, in one of our previous emails, I asked you about uh, what it practically looks like to live out of the reality of being community-oriented and not individualism. You gave three great tips. First, uh, to understand the church as a gift. Second, to see yourself as a part of the body. And third, uh, not to require anyone else to join you there. But from the repeated tone in multiple episodes, and I don't know you, this is just extrapolating and a characterization, but it sounds like you have real qualms. And it sounds like you are for expertise, which I am crediting you with. And you also take a posture of humility, which I don't fully get yet. How do you appear to others? How do you come off? Does your church find you blissfully enjoying anything and everything or with your brow wrinkled as you wince through your Sunday experience? I ask this because my wife says I am sour and resentful and incredibly critical of our local church. And I agree there are things that I feel are wrong that I hesitate to share, but I have a terrible poker face. Uh, I also, but I also love my small group and feel like God really is doing work in and through it. How do I engage on a week-to-week basis? What questions do I need to ask myself to see if I'm just resentful, angry, and sour? Any advice? Man, I just love that email, and there's loads that I want uh, to say about this. Um, so here we go. Uh, first, I I just want to repeat what I said on the first uh, podcast. Um, the fact that I'm doing this for me, this podcast is really for a, an avenue for me. I get intellectually lazy. And um, while I think about various things, I don't always take the opportunity to actually put things together. And I had been blogging uh, for a good while, which was an avenue for me to, uh, to sort of collate some thoughts and bring some reflections together. Um, but for me, the classroom was my space for sort of bringing thoughts together and processing those with students um, having to do with scripture and um, how we can live faithfully while also taking note of um, the varieties of ways that our communities struggle with faithfulness. But when the quarantine began, the classroom was taken away and that opportunity for reflection was lost and I really missed it. And I honestly just felt my brain getting super flabby and I hated it. So I thought of starting this podcast, which provides me with a with some motivation to put reflections together and to invite others to join me in conversation, which always helps to sharpen my thinking. Um, so I honestly thought nobody would listen to it, but I'm really glad that it does resonate with some people. Um, 
And so secondly, I realized that I may sound like a crank, like just some critical person who is simply critical of the church and, and evangelical culture and is just airing grievances. And you may get the impression that I sort of show up to my church and just, um, you know, belch forth all this negativity. But that is not the case at all. In my job as a biblical scholar, I spend my time uh, deep in New Testament texts that cast the vision for how God wants his people to live together. And I'm also a Christian who was raised within an evangelical culture um, that has impulses within it and cultural patterns that run against the grain of that New Testament vision. And that is profoundly troubling to me. And so um, I feel that I want to talk about it. And uh, in my classes and in what I write uh, on my blog, I point these things out and try to find the language to identify them accurately and to speak to those realities so that we all see them clearly. And I also try to point to more fruitful ways of life. Um, But here's something that I try to remind students of uh, all the time and that I should note here as well. Um, I think it's incredibly important to cultivate a critical mind, uh, to analyze our culture and its corruptions, and to discern the ways that our Christian communities have been conformed to those corruptions. And at the same time that we're cultivating a critical mind, we have to resist the temptation to develop a critical spirit toward the church. So in the classroom, you know, we think about things critically. Um, that is, we you know, take great pains to uh, analyze the assumptions we bring to the text and look at our cultural patterns and see, see how they shape uh, the ways that we see things. It's, that's, um, it's, in, it's an exercise in critical thought, critical thinking, critical reflection. Um, and we discern carefully what Scripture has to say about the life of God's people. But I remind students that when we walk out of the classroom and into our churches, we don't just dump all that critical reflection on them. That's not the space uh, to do that. It's not, it's not appropriate. That critical reflection should shape how each of us who are doing the critical reflection um, imagine how we can be shaped redemptively. And uh, especially for those who are speaking God's word to the church, we need to think about how we can cast a life-giving vision that avoids cultural corruption. So we identify the cultural corruptions, and we also um, speak uh, about how our, communi- uh, how our communities can be shaped redemptively. One way of avoiding a critical spirit is to recognize that our culture's corruptions also have corrupted each of us. So as you know, for me, for my part, I'm not an impartial judge who stands over the church passing judgment on it or criticizing it from some neutral place. I'm I'm part of it. I'm not innocent. I'm wrapped up in the problem. So I speak, I try to speak anyway, from a posture of confession of sin, noting that corrupt cultural dynamics have their hooks in me too. But I feel that an important part of seeing our churches renewed by God's Spirit uh, is to highlight these corruptions and to try to imagine new ways of life whereby we can all enjoy God's blessing of life among us. Um, Another very important way of having a critical mind while not having a critical spirit is to do the work of discernment uh, to begin to see the ways individualism 
<clears throat> is at work not only in my church, but in my imagination. So I can't control the other people in my church. Um, I don't want them controlling me. But for my part, I can do the work of imagining how I can begin to see the church anew. I can play a redemptive role. I can't force other people to. So I can begin uh, to see the church as a gift to me and to put into practice some ways of relating to others that are redemptive and mutually life-giving. All that is to say that, you know, I talk about critical matters on this podcast um, as, a, as a way of sort of bringing my thoughts together. But none of these sorts of things are what I talk about when I'm at church. And I, I don't make critical comments about the church or grouse about the preaching or other aspects of church life. I try to see others at their best, and I try to regard the church uh, at its best and as a great gift to me. So I'm doing this podcast as sort of an extension of my work in the classroom. But at church, I'm a participant in the community. And my responsibility is to cultivate postures of relating to others so that I receive all the good that they have to give me. And I open myself up to possible situations where I can be an agent of God's, good, of God's goodness to others. I try to approach my church as if it's the collection of people that are God's richest gift to me. And it's my responsibility to sort of open that gift up and receive its goodness over time. You know, even with all their faults and failings and shortcomings, because, you know, I'm loaded with those too. And it's a gift to me that I'm received as a gift by my church, by people in my church. So those are great questions, Mark. Um, how do I come off to others? Well, I'll have to let other people answer that. But um, I aim to come off as a joyful participant, someone who has time to listen to how someone else's week went and ready to share how I'm doing when somebody asks me. I'm someone who's always up for, for a good conversation about whatever somebody wants to talk about, hopefully something sports-related. And I don't want to say that I have low expectations of others or of the church, but I try to keep my expectations in check. Our culture can train us to have crazy expectations about how everything should be, but we have to be realistic. Community life is pretty ho-hum most of the time, and that's how it is to relate to me. I'm pretty ho-hum myself. But over the long run, um, it seems that if we stick with a community, it can be really rich and the, and the source of, of uh, profound goodness. So I try to keep that in mind. So just to say, I think um, I'd want to keep a, a watchful eye on my critical spirit and focus on having realistic expectations. Uh, for a long time, I went to church each week thinking simply about having the goal of having one meaningful conversation, one in which uh, someone could possibly share something with me or perhaps I might have the opportunity to share something with another person. If that happened, I'd call it a pretty good Sunday. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, to a couple of your other questions. Yes, you can be an expert in something and be a humble person. And this is how that relates to all that I've just said. Um, as an expert in the critical study of the Bible, that expertise should mean that I'm expertly at work at cultivating a humble posture, um, cultivating a humble location within a church community that, uh, in ways that draw out the blessing that others have to contribute and sharing my own contribution to the flourishing of people as well. So just summing that up then, 
you know, all of this for me is an exercise in cultivating a critical mind while avoiding the temptation to have a critical spirit. So I hope that hits some of what you're getting at, Mark. And if you've got uh, follow-up thoughts, you know, I'd love to hear those as well. But thank you uh, for your great questions. I just loved reading that email. I want to tell you about a book, one of my absolute all-time favorite books. It's Daniel Borston's classic work, The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America. It's an older book. It was written originally in 1962, and it's been through many printings over the last almost 60 years. But it is absolutely essential uh, for understanding so many dynamics about our contemporary culture. Daniel Borston was a historian. Uh, he taught for many years at the University of Chicago and eventually became the Librarian of Congress, which is an, pretty impressive. Uh, what do you do as the Librarian of Congress? Is it sort of like the librarian in my hometown? I, I can't say. Uh, he wrote many books, but this is one of my absolute all-time favorites. I've read it a few times. I go back to it now and again. It is just brilliant. It's really the book that turned me on to um, just reading works of cultural analysis. But he describes the hollowing out of contemporary American culture um, in so many different ways and in so many different areas, um, especially how we tend to skate across the surface of things describing especially the the dynamics of self-promotion, image making, and he does this, as I said, in many areas of American life. Uh, he talks about the news. Formerly, what we think of as, quote-unquote, the news or what is newsworthy uh, was regarded as simple reporting on something that happened. There was a fire in such and such a building, and here's how it happened, and here's who was involved. Now, however, what is news is whatever is interesting and whatever will get people's attention, whatever will get eyeballs. Um, we have stories now all the time in newspapers and on cable television about what people think will happen. News items that are pure speculation and not at all reportage about actual events. We have political reporting on who might win rather than you know what do politicians believe and is it wise, is it good, let's analyze it. He talks about advertising. Uh, advertising used to simply be letting the public know that a company had a product that people could purchase. Here's what it involves, uh, here's what it can do, and here's how to obtain it. Now, advertising is all about the display of a sort of image you could have if you purchase a certain product. You want to be thought of by others in this way, right? You want to be the envy of your neighbors, and you will be if you drink this beer or buy these shoes. Borston also has loads to say about self-promotion and the sort of image cultivation and image maintenance that in our day characterizes our participation in social media. Formerly, busy people would hire a personal secretary in order to handle uh, public affairs, sort mail, that kind of thing. Borston noted the rise in his day of publicity agents, people who work to get someone's name out there in the public consciousness and cultivate public perception of them the same dynamics that we are all now involved in um, on social media. This, that has kind of overtaken the entire culture. One of Borston's most uh, memorable chapters is his chronicling of the transformation from heroes to celebrities. And after reading it, you realize how shallow and insulting it is to be regarded as a celebrity. Formerly, people were known for their heroic achievements and great accomplishments. Borston says that we now have celebrities 
people who are well-known simply for their well-knownness, people who haven't accomplished anything noteworthy, but have simply managed to insert themselves into the public consciousness in various ways. It's fascinating to see Borston delineate these dynamics in the middle of the 20th century, things that have, as I said, overtaken the entire culture. The roots of our very shallow, image-conscious, celebritized culture go way back, and Borston provides a fascinating and entertaining guide. It's really a prophetic work. So Daniel Borston, The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America. Buy it at an independent bookstore. I want to talk a little bit about uh, critical race theory and um, describe it briefly, but I I really want to focus on uh, how it is that uh, critical race theory, intersectionality, um, and these sort of analytical tools are uh, ways of seeing the world that resonate powerfully and profoundly with how scripture calls the people of God uh, to look at the world with, uh, with discernment for how oppression and exclusion and marginalization uh, are at work in our culture. Uh, Critical race theory has come in for some criticism recently, at least by uh, some loud voices. Uh, The president uh, mentioned it recently. Uh, Some time ago, a year or two ago, um, a couple of evangelical leaders, uh, John MacArthur and some others, uh, Vadi Bauckham, I believe, uh, put out a statement on social justice, sort of uh, decoupling it from the gospel, and uh, I believe mentioned uh, critical race theory and feminism, um, and sort of uh, demonizing these ways of seeing and these ways of looking at culture. Um, this reaction is part of uh, part of a response or um, a rejection of. Uh, calls for social justice, calls for attending to and listening um, to uh, folks that want to remind our larger culture that Black Lives Matter. Um, and many Christians and Christian leaders have um, you know, resonated with um, that sort of reaction against uh, this movement to pay attention closely to how racism uh, works in our culture. And I find that tremendously unfortunate. I find it tragic, actually. Um, because in our culture, there are many voices um, arising, calling uh, out injustices, noting them, um, calling for the relief of uh, historically marginalized um, populations. Um, and, you know, because these are the kinds of people that have God's ear, Christians ought to be attending to those things. But sadly, many white Christians, many white evangelicals, um, are not doing a good job of listening. And um, that's, uh, to my mind, a betrayal of Christian identity and um, runs in exactly the opposite direction uh, from how um, God is calling us to function and uh, form ourselves as members of kingdom of God communities. So what is critical race theory? And, and is it is it something threatening? Um, well, this is what critical race theory is, just to give a brief description. Um, uh, it's an analytical tool that recognizes that racism and a racialized way of seeing things 
affects everything within our culture. And uh, racism functions as sort of the norm when we talk about pretty much everything. And critical race theory attempts to discern and expose the dynamics of how that all functions to foster systems and structures of oppression and exclusion and um, unjust treatment. Um, it discerns how race works in society, uh, in literature, in the arts, in politics, in history writing, in the law, um, all in an effort to determine how various structures of oppression are at work. And um, you know, all that affects attitudes, speech patterns, cultural assumptions, and they show up in how we communicate, how we envision reality, how we portray reality. Um, all of this because race was such a central part um, of the formation of American culture from, from 401 years ago. Um, all of that ends up fostering injustice and the oppression of people of color. And so critical race theory is not, it's not a, um, an idea, it's not um, a position, it's not a worldview, it's um, not a movement or a group, it's an analytical tool that starts from that assumption of the, you know, the pervasive uh, place of racism and a racialized way of seeing things. Um, and, it, and it analyzes uh, culture and politics and literature and history writing from there. So um, it also seeks to bring um, voices and perspectives that have been historically marginalized to the center so that diverse uh, perspectives can be represented and heard. Uh, closely related to this is uh, the notion of intersectionality, uh, which also is an analytical tool for discerning how various dimensions of oppression sort of work together and overlap. Um, so race and gender, uh, along with age and disability. Um, so the task here uh, would be to inquire into the manner in which various systems and structures of oppression affect how they affect, sorry, for example, black women, um, because black women are part of um, a marginalized set um, of uh, people of color, and then also uh, historically marginalized uh, gender women. So, um, how how does how do uh, how do those dynamics? of oppression end up working, um, that's the question that intersectionality uh, examines. So I mean, for just to give you an example, in my context uh, at the seminary, I teach at uh, an evangelical seminary, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and um, it's, a, it's a historically evangelical uh, institution um, going on about uh, 80 years or so now. And uh, it has it is historically uh, a predominantly white institution because evangelicalism uh, was purposefully sort of cult, um, cultivated as a white movement throughout the 20th century. So that, that affects how evangelical uh, organizations function and form, and it affects the makeup um, and the operating dynamics of an institution like it. Uh, so it's a historically white institution, and it's a place that has um, centered white maleness. So white men have historically been the president. They've all been, all the presidents have been white men. Uh, the board makeup 
has been predominantly uh, white men for many years. Uh, thankfully, that's changing. Um, white male faculty members, uh, for the most part. And uh, so in a sense, the institution, um, that, that affects institutional operating dynamics and how we all function together as um, you know, a social unit and various social units within the university. Um, so the questions that we have to ask and that thankfully we're asking these kinds of questions um, are in uh, historically male spaces, what is it like for women to function uh, in such spaces? What are the specific pressures brought to bear? What are the assumptions made about uh, female professors or female students or female administrators? Do they feel um, rightly represented? Do they, do they feel justly treated? Um, that would be one set of questions. Another set of questions would be, um, what's the experience of black people within a largely white space? Um, what are the pressures that they feel? Uh, what are the assumptions made about black students? What are the assumptions made uh, about black professors? What are the specific ways that they are treated um, that make them feel like they are not an essential part of our community? And the way that intersectionality would function uh, would ask questions like, what about uh, black women within that context? What are the assumptions made about them? Uh, what are the specific pressures brought to bear on um, women uh, professors who are people of color? Uh, what are what are sort of typical student complaints or typical typical student um, responses uh, to them? Um, so intersectionality asks those kinds of questions, along with uh, questions about um, uh, those with disabilities. Do they feel uh, fully represented? Do they feel like they are made an essential part of our community? Um, so intersectionality sees the overlap of things and uh, uh, asks specific questions um, along that line. An excellent book on this, and I talked about this a uh, number of episodes ago, uh, is uh, Shaniqua Walker Barnes's book, I Bring the Voices of My People. She's an Orthodox Christian woman of color, a seminary professor, uh, and she wrote about how Christian and evangelical efforts at racial reconciliation have inadvertently marginalized the voices of Black women. And um, it's an excellent work that uses the tools of critical race theory and intersectionality to review the last 30 years or so of evangelical efforts at racial reconciliation and discerns how and why they have failed because they're not taking into account the full range uh, of voices that could be brought to bear um, on those kinds of efforts. And uh, she has this fantastic quote um, from her book, and I'll just read this. She's quoting another scholar, Vivian May, uh, who says that intersectionality is a form of resistant knowledge developed to unsettle conventional mindsets, challenge oppressive power, think through the full architecture of structural inequalities and asymmetrical life opportunities and seek a more just world. It has been forged in the context of struggles for social justice as a means to challenge dominance, foster critical imaginaries and craft collective models for change. And I just, Love that quote uh, because that is exactly what Christians ought to be uh, seriously interested in. Um, that's what we should be discerning 
And there are loads of scriptures that call uh, the church to do that. Um, I mean, this is what the prophets blast Israel for. The prophets are filled with exactly that kind of thing. Um, noting uh, the classes, um, the classes of people who foster oppression, calling out the dynamics of oppression, and um, calling for advocacy and um, just treatment of marginalized classes. That's not because you know the prophets are all Marxists. That's because God's heart is for the poor and the marginalized and the, the excluded and the mistreated. And God is a God of justice who attends carefully and um, intently to those who are mistreated. And um, God's people should do the same. And I want to talk about that in just a little bit. But anyway, that's all too brief and um, uh, shallow of a sort of um, a review of critical race theory and intersectionality. All I can say is this is not something to be feared, um, but to my mind reveals that uh, Christians who are fearful of it, evangelical leaders who are um, skeptical and critical of it don't necessarily know what it is um, and also don't understand uh, scriptural priorities that reveal the heart of God. Well, this is why I think uh, some white evangelical leaders are opposed to it or are sowing um, skepticism toward it. I think one reason is just because it's unfamiliar. Uh, it's a different idea, and it comes from, um, you know, uh, a range of culture that has uh, historically, um, evangelicals have historically been skeptical about, you know, the academy, which is unfortunate. Uh, evangelicals have historically been anti-intellectual. They build sort of, uh, you know, their own academies and um, seeing the secular academy as something that uh, they can't participate in, which is tremendously unfortunate. But it comes from sort of an unfamiliar uh, quarter, and it uncovers patterns and systems in our culture that run against the grain of some of evangelical impulses that have shaped their patterns of thought. Evangelical thinking is thoroughly shaped by individualism, personal responsibility, and merit. And um, critical race theory is focused on analyzing larger systemic realities, structural realities. And evangelicals don't really have the tools um, to see how those things work out. So when we see somebody um, who cries out about unjust treatment or marginalization or oppression, uh, we typically answer from an individualistic perspective and just say, well, you're just you know, looking for a handout, you're just uh, wanting an unfair advantage in some way. You need to take responsibility uh, for your own station. But we we don't want to note um, how it is that larger structures often put um, some people at a disadvantage, or um, uh, marginalize them in some way, or or are um, fostering oppression. So we don't attend uh, to those cries. Another reason is white evangelicalism, I think historically, has benefited from the cultural norm and is comfortable within the culture as it is. And so we don't want um, to revisit things. We don't want to uh, have cultural assumptions um, thrown up. We're comfortable here. And uh, insofar as we think that anything is wrong, evangelicals over the last 50 years certainly but this is something that goes back um, 
to eh, maybe the last 75 years of evangelical history, we have cultivated, and this has come on strong in recent decades, we have cultivated this illusion that we're being persecuted in some way and that um, you know, calls on the part of uh, black people um, to take note of dynamics of oppression, we take that as persecution in some way, or we see that as threatening. Um, that's, that's really unfortunate. And I think that that's a very poor response. Um, and I think that uh, the illusion of persecution is just that. We are not being persecuted. Um, historically, Christian, white Christians in America have run things and have been at the top of the cultural ladder and calls for others to have equal participation, we interpret um, as calls uh, for somebody else to be in charge or to dominate. When nobody's looking to dominate, people are wanting to be, um, are wanting to no longer be oppressed, basically. I think that most importantly, um, these critical tools are threatening, are seen as threatening, because they expose how white evangelical culture is so thoroughly shaped by whiteness. That is, ideologies of whiteness that set white people or um, you know, white spaces or, or um, white neighborhoods, white schools, white organizations. Uh, the ideologies of whiteness set white people at, especially white men, at the center um, and are sort of the standard by which everything else is evaluated and judged. And we don't like to have that pointed out. That's uncomfortable. Uh, but critical race theory exposes that, exposes the whiteness of evangelical churches, organizations, mindsets, and evangelical leaders are resistant uh, because they're invested in the maintenance of power, uh, the maintenance of prestige, and um, react defensively. Um, power is not given up easily. Uh, and when we when we are called to have just equal participation or partnership, we will end up interpreting that as um, a call, um, you know, as a as a sort of a move, a, a power move in itself. When it isn't, uh, we're the ones who need to learn to share power, to share responsibility, and to play well with others. So I think there's a lot of this that's all about power and the protection of what we imagine. Uh, belongs to us. And so back to that quote that I just read from uh, Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, we don't want power identified. Um, historically, evangelicals, uh, or at least over the last 50 years, since 1970, the rise uh, of the religious right and its political efforts, evangelicals are, are pretty intent on accumulating power, consolidating power, and um, holding on to power. Um, and that's, I think that that's uh, something profoundly corrupt. There's also the assumption that um, the way things are is the way that things should be, and we are blind uh, to cultural corruptions and systemic realities that are oppressive, and that's the core starting point for critical race theory. Racism is pervasive, and it's sort of become ordinary, and it's the norm, and it needs to be pointed out and discerned and exposed. Um, and so we will feel uncomfortable when that is done. So when black people point out these systems and structures that foster injustice, uh, we don't see it and we'll deny it. Um, but that's because we are the beneficiaries of a system and we are not being harmed by it. And so we're resistant to recognizing, frankly, how pervasive 
structural racism is and how pervasive, how thoroughly um, a racialized lens has become the way that we see the world. And uh, we need to have um, the character development to be willing to listen and to learn, and we need to do the hard work of fostering the discernment to see all of this. It's, it's, a, it's a big job. It's going to be a lifelong task, a generations-long task, um, but it's one I think that we ought to engage. Also, um, another reason I think evangelicals um, are typically resistant uh, to thinking about critical race theory or hearing insights from it and why evangelical leaders are uh, interested in in casting suspicion about it um, kind of goes along with the evangelical habit of being against things. Uh, we Evangelicals have to have some bogeyman out there. We have to identify threats. And what we really like is to sort of dress up critiques in some kind of intellectual garb. Um, there's a long tradition of this uh, among evangelicals. I mean, just go back, you know, Francis Schaeffer, um, this kind of um, person who portrayed himself as this European intellectual. And um, what he had to say about things uh, would have not gained an audience on, 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 you know, without him being against something. He was against secular humanism. Um, that was behind everything that was threatening. Before him, uh, Billy Graham was always uh, talking about the threats of communism. Uh, of course, you know he was being used by um, President Eisenhower uh, to sort of rally Americans, um, you know, to some sort of Christian. Uh, Christianity was becoming with Billy Graham a civil religion, kind of a religion of the nation, and it was arrayed against communism to sort of guard against the communist threat. Um, a lot of, you know, nefarious dynamics going on behind that. Um, but Billy Graham's uh, identification of a clear enemy and something to be against made sense. It, it makes sense with how uh, evangelicals are wired. Liberalism, socialism, evolution. I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, Ken Ham has built uh, quite, um, you know, a number of institutions on identifying evolution as this uh, fundamental threat to Christian orthodoxy. More recently, postmodernism, feminism. So, you know, all of these, there's an evangelical habit of feeling kind of good about where we stand, you know, if we have identified the right enemy or the right threat. I formerly taught at, a, at an institution. I remember one time we were having, we were interviewing a candidate for a job as a professor and a colleague asked the question it just struck me um he asked you know what, he asked this candidate uh, what do you see as the next you know two threats that are coming down the road i just thought what a what a way of seeing things with you know no intellectual curiosity um why not say what what are the what are the exciting trends in biblical interpretation or what are what are the exciting trends in theology these days that can help us see things in a new frame or that can cast new light on on things for us or that can bring us to new levels of understanding but the typical evangelical posture is to assume that uh, you know we're the ones who get it we're the ones on the inside and we need to guard and, and sort of um uh, police the borders of our cultures um through identifying the threats that can't get in 
which is such a different way of seeing things uh, from how Scripture portrays things. Scripture is always identifying the people of God as the ones that need reforming and the ones whose hearts are uh, often you know, going astray and the ones whose um, loyalties are drifting elsewhere. And, you know, we're the one, the, the, the threats arise from within. When Paul was talking to um, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and giving them sort of a final charge, he uh, told them, be on the lookout among yourselves because people are going to rise from among you, uh, you know, driven by ambition and want to gain a following and gain a hearing and gain prominence. And my sense is that um, that is the dynamic that's actually going on with a lot of evangelical leaders and evangelical spokespeople. Um, they want to gain a following. There are agendas at work with their wanting to have a voice. And um, one way to tap into an audience is to identify a threat or an enemy and um, draw on that uh, latent fear, not so latent actually, and it's pretty strong, uh, that runs through evangelical culture of looking out uh, for that threat. Um, that's not a good way of seeing things, but I think that that's what's happening here uh, with, I mean, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, critical race theory, intersectionality. These are being characterized uh, within this intellectual, or sorry, within this evangelical intellectual frame um, of wanting to find the threats that are out there. You know, these new bogeymen, things that we need to be uh, highly skeptical of. And I think that that's um, uh, tremendously unfortunate. Now, here's why I say that. And um, here's why I think that uh, Christians have nothing at all to fear from critical race theory or from intersectionality. And uh, why I think that Christians should enthusiastically resonate with the notion and the reality that Black Lives Matter and should be attentive uh, to all of these sorts of dynamics. And I've not described uh, critical race theory and intersectionality at great length, because in one sense, my concern is not to, um, to draw those out and give us a full understanding of, of those uh, you know, interpretive approaches to culture, literature, politics, the law, history, etc. My, my bigger concern is... Uh, is evangelical postures toward these kinds of um, interpretive lenses and uh, towards the participation in our culture of other people. That's what's, that's a bigger deal to me um, because the way that we respond, the way that evangelical leaders have responded uh, runs against the grain um, of the vision for justice that runs throughout the scripture. And that, to me, is problematic in a betrayal of Christian identity um, and runs, you know, in a different direction than Christian discipleship. Uh, the, the Old Testament law, um, which is so misunderstood in so many ways by, by Christian people, um, the law is, is, it was God's liberating reality uh, for Israel. It's better just understood as Torah, instruction, when God liberated um, Israel from uh, slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the land of uh, promise and then gave them Torah instruction for how they could inhabit uh, the land and how they could inhabit God's love and fully experience his blessing and carry out his mission in the world. 
and enjoy flourishing in the land. So it pointed to the way of life for Israel. It was not an impossible standard that no one could keep. Um, that's just a terrible way of viewing um, the Old Testament law. But this vision of life that um, that Torah laid out um, basically framed their worship. Their worship of the one true God was not something that they did one day a week. Um, many Christians today, under we think about worship as 18 minutes of singing on a Sunday morning. That's not worship. Uh, in Scripture, worship is a total way of life. Um, and Israel's worship of the God of Israel and the, the one true God of creation, uh, their worship was a total way of life that involved economics, economic justice, um, politics. It involved taking care of the land, intense concern for the soil and for not wearing out the soil. Um, by rotating crops and by by taking a year off from planting every seven years. Just a crazy way of life, um, a joyful way of life. I have a party, a year-long party every seven years. How's that for national policy? And um, Israel's looking after the poor, the orphan and the widow. All of that was Israel's worship. They were not to have an economy where there were uh, vast disparities between rich and poor. Um, if somebody through loads of foolish decisions lost their land, they would get it. It would be returned to their family uh, every seven years. So people were not to be accumulating wealth and property um, so that there would be poor people among God's people. That was uh, not to be a way of life that they were to cultivate nationally. Um, Unjust economics, unjust politics, etc., worrying out the soil, not taking care of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Those were the ways of life that were up and running in other nations. And uh, God wanted Israel to be one nation that represented um, the national way of life um, characterized by God's order of flourishing on earth uh, to be a depiction of how the one true God wanted all the nations to live. Um, so according to that logic, if Israel was to allow uh, systems and practices and structures of injustice uh, to develop among them, that would have been the national embodiment of the worship of the gods of other nations, because that's how other nations um, conduct themselves. And other nations that worship other gods uh, have nations filled with injustice and oppression. So the worship of idols... The worship of other gods involves social injustice and oppression, whereas the worship of the one true God uh, involves economic justice, um, which involves um, care for the poor, uh, intense concern for the marginalized, uh, sharing goods, making sure that there are no poor among the nation. Um, that's what worshiping God looks like in a national form of life. Um, the king was not to be lifted up over the rest of Israel. The king was not to go to grow rich. Um, the king was supposed to be just some ordinary person, says Deuteronomy. Um, they weren't supposed to grow wealthy while others grew poor. Um, that's the vision of economic. That's that's the vision of an economic system and a political system that pleased God. So great disparities between rich and poor was a sign of national unfaithfulness to God, because God's heart is for the poor. God's heart is for the orphan and the widow. And um, God hates injustice that is at work um, in 
social dynamics and through oppressive structures. Uh, so when Israel became that kind of people, um, an, an unjust people, uh, God sent prophets and uh, prophets who issued God's judgment on the rich and for their neglect of the poor. People should have had hearts to listen to the cries of the poor, but they didn't. And God got angry. Um, God is attentive to the cry of the marginalized and the excluded. Uh, he's the one who hears the prayer of Hannah. Um, Hannah was the socially shamed wife of Elkanah. She was barren, and which brought her social shame and uh, was ridiculed by um, uh, Elkanah's other wife, who had children. And so Hannah had all this dishonor on her. And she prayed, and God heard, because God hears those kinds of people. And as I said before, like passages like Jeremiah 7, um, the prophets um, are loaded with um, with warnings from God to Israel that he does not hear their prayers and that he hates their festivals. He hates their services um, because they've become a people uh, content with injustice. So since um, the marginalized are the kind of people that God hears, uh, we need to be attentive to people who are asking white people, white Christians, to listen, to, to, to take note of dynamics of oppression um, and to work together to bring about changes that reflect God's justice. Um, injustice makes God angry, and so uh, and God hears the, uh, the cry of the oppressed. And so if people are claiming to be oppressed and claiming that there's injustice, we should perk up. We should listen up and take note and listen and learn. And if we don't see it, um, it's our role, uh, you know, to clear out the eye boogers and get out the earwax so that we really see the dynamics that are unfolding and that other people can see um, because God's anger, God's judgment uh, is uh, fully involved in situations like that. Social divisions between classes developed in Israel. And God got angry about that. And um, God speaks in the prophets about systems and structures. He, he talks about social classes. Um, there's, no, there's no individualism uh, in the Old Testament. There's none in the New Testament, though we, we insert it here and there, uh, actually throughout. Um, but God blasts whole social groups for being caught in systems of oppression. There might be this or that individual um, who can have some claim to be innocent or they didn't know uh, or they, they didn't mean for any of that to develop, um, but such dynamics did develop. And so groups of people were judged and the nation was judged um, being sent into exile by God and have, you know, having their temple destroyed and um, yeah, bloodbath of judgment for that. Israel had become... Uh, a people that were rife with systemic and social injustice, and they were sent into exile for it. Uh, the New Testament, uh, you know, when the New Testament opens and Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, he is proclaiming that the the holistic order, um, the holistic economic, political, social order of flourishing of God's flourishing has arrived in Jesus, and so uh, Jesus calls people to repent, to turn from unjust ways of life and join that social order and join the forgiveness of sins and um, learning the practices of social justice, of God's social justice. 
And um, when Jesus um, addresses uh, things that have gone wrong, he speaks to structural power dynamics. He speaks to these corrupted patterns and structures and systems. And he speaks to social groups, to, to classes that are involved in injustice. And just to you know, make, uh, give some examples from Mark's gospel, um, he, he calls out all the scribes. He doesn't say some of you scribes are like this, but you scribes are like this because there are social patterns that had developed uh, among them. It's interesting because there's one exception. Um, Jesus talks to a scribe, and the scribe, uh, after talking to him, uh, he says, you are not far from the kingdom. That does not stop him from making prophetic uh, judgments against the whole group. In fact, the disciples as a group in Mark's gospel have become uh, an unfaithful people, an adulterous generation. Um, As a whole, he calls them out. Uh, He calls out the priests, the whole group. And he echoes Jeremiah's uh, judgment in Jeremiah 7 uh, because the temple in the Old Testament uh, era had become a den of thieves. It had become a place of radical social injustice and exploitation. And Jesus notes that in the New Testament, the same thing has happened, which is why he he cites Jeremiah's statement. Um, you know, the temple's been turned into a place that is rife with ex- economic exploitation, where the poor are mistreated and uh, the priests are growing rich. He calls out the Pharisees as a group. Uh, Mark, Jesus doesn't talk about the Sanhedrin, but Mark um, uh, indicts the, the whole of the Sanhedrin. They are all guilty of having, of having passed judgment on Jesus. And interestingly, um, in Mark's gospel, this is one of my favorite dynamics that are, that are uh, running, that's running through that gospel. Um, all the people that should get Jesus don't, including the disciples. They all misunderstand and they all respond to Jesus wrongly in a variety of ways, and Jesus uh, condemns them for it. Um, but Mark notes that outsiders, the marginalized and the excluded, outsiders respond to Jesus. Um, the demon possessed man in Mark uh, 5. Um, the widow who has uh, been unclean for 12 years because she's had this bleeding issue. Um, the, the, uh, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 uh, is one of the heroes of Mark. And then, of course, uh, the woman in uh, Mark 14 who uh, bursts into Jesus' dinner and uh, anoints his body for burial, uh, sort of you know, the high point of that dynamic. All these outsider um, people that are members of outsider groups are getting Jesus. So just to say again, when outsider groups, who um, you know historically marginalized people, are talking about injustice and want to get the attention of the rest of us, Christians should take notice, because these are the kind of people that the gospel centers, which is um, a repeated dynamic uh, in the gospels. Uh, I kind of want to say that it's a special burden of Mark and Luke to point that out. It kind of is, but these same dynamics are up and running in the other gospels as well. Uh, So in the New Testament, Jesus speaks this way. Social groups have become wrapped up into uh, dynamics of social and systemic injustice and real harm to the socially marginalized and vulnerable is being done. And God is angry and he will judge when this happens. 
After all, he judged in the Old Testament, bringing in foreign invaders to destroy it. And uh, Jesus speaks God's judgment on the temple uh, when he curses the fig tree and then announces that um, judgment uh, in his encounter with the uh, temple authorities. Um, and he predicted its utter destruction by the Romans, of course, in in, um, in Mark 13. So when, um, when some groups are talking about um, problems of uh, massive economic disparity, um, you know, structural systems of oppression, and evangelical leaders call such talk cultural Marxism, um, they're showing that they don't get it. They're showing that they don't have hearts and minds and imaginations that are shaped by scripture, but shaped by um, an unjust culture, an unjust American culture. Um, by the way, that accusation, cultural Marxism, uh, comes from a pretty dark place, um, and it's it's really nonsensical. Um, you know, Marxism, Marxist critiques are filled with critiques of you know how capital works, how uh, wealth and class work, and um, our our uh, our um, analyses of how these dynamics work uh, to foster oppression. And um, people get very frightened at that. Um, at that name, Karl Marx, um, associating it with all the worst things about um, you know communist regimes, but it's still the case that we can resonate, I think, um, with these kind of critiques of how power works in our culture, um, but then go back to the text of Scripture to see what God's purposes are, because throughout Scripture there are there are analyses of power, of how power and class and wealth work, and if other people are doing that, they're involved in a common project. But that smear of cultural Marxism is really an empty one. That term was first used by uh, Paul Weyrich um, back in the 1970s, and he was one of the architects of the religious right and um, one of the chief um, agents of our current highly polarized culture, uh, which is tragic. Um, but that, yeah, that criticism is just an empty one. There's no such thing as cultural Marxism. And um, it's, a, it's another buzzword to sort of be against. It's another uh, sort of threat to identify that doesn't actually identify anything. It's just a word we can kind of throw at anything we don't like or that we find uh, uncomfortable, foreign, or um, threatening. So when evangelical leaders complain about um, that kind of talk and they decry cultural Marxism, to my mind, they're demonstrating the same uh, stubborn attitudes uh, toward the oppressed that angered God and angered Jesus during his earthly ministry. Um, moving on to Paul, uh, Paul especially calls for critiquing social dynamics of power and systemic injustices. Uh, he uses the language of the powers and authorities uh, quite a bit. And um, this was one of the areas of my uh, research in my PhD study. I was not uh, familiar with these entities and um, the rich uh, the rich biblical tradition um, that Paul draws upon uh, when he talks about these. But the powers and authorities are sort of these cosmic figures in Jewish thought that um, orient uh, systemic injustices and structural inequities. They, um, you know, class divisions, divisions between uh, ethnicities, uh, hostilities that we find in culture, and the various dynamics and uh, corrupt ways that power works. Jewish thinkers and Paul, along with them, would have seen behind these the work of the powers and authorities. 
And this is why um, Paul has quite a bit to say about these um, in Ephesians, but then also in First uh, and Second Corinthians and in Romans and in Galatians and in Colossians. Um, because the death of Christ dealt specifically with their enslaving grip over the world. Um, and spiritual warfare, I mean, God has defeated them, uh, broken their enslaving grip uh, in the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, the church is called to inhabit the victory that uh, God won in Jesus by conducting spiritual warfare. And it's a warfare of resistance. And uh, Ephesians basically is Paul's call to the church to take up that task of discerning how systems of oppression are at work, how structural dynamics um, are at work uh, that are unjust, and how subtle ideologies uh, creep in and orient our thinking, um, even though we're blind to them. Um, but they're the, they're the ideologies that uphold these systems and structures. And Paul calls the church to discern them, to learn to see them, and then to form communities that uh, run in a different direction, run in the direction of God's justice. So we're to be resisting. That's why I love that quote about um, intersectionality from Shaniqua Walker Barnes, because she talks about um, intersectionality as this analytical tool of resistance. And that's exactly what Paul calls the church to. Uh, take note of these larger systems, see how they do their work, how do they affect communities? How do they play out in relationships? How do they play out in structures and systems? Uh, how do they function in social groups and between social groups? How does marginalization and exclusion work? What are the factors involved? Um, call these out, identify them, and then as the church, form communities of ongoing repentance and ongoing justice, constantly putting off um, the old humanity that does that represents the present evil age and its corruptions and put on Christ, this new political, economic, social reality um, birthed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the call of Paul to the church. So this is yet another reason why I think it's so important to discern how individualism works in our culture because individual, individualism hides these corporate structural realities. We're trained by our cultural lenses that we've inherited over the last 500 years to not look at this thing to not look at things this way but since the bible does we need to as well and that'll take a lot of work to sort of readjust our ideological framework away from individualism toward uh, these larger dynamics it it will take a lot of work but we have resources critical race theory intersectionality is another and uh, the figures associated with black lives matter uh, can help us to see these dynamics that scripture calls us to discern and locate and identify and resist through the cultivation of community dynamics of god's justice so just to say that is what i'm concerned about not so much um elaborating a, a thorough a description of critical race theory and intersectionality um, but to say that the you know, works that come from that angle of approach, the, the church ought to see as rich resources uh, for our benefit uh, to fulfill, um, to answer the call uh, of Paul to us. So when, you know, when white evangelical leaders and other national leaders or people on Fox News 
you know, criticize these ways of analyzing cultural corruptions, they're calling us away from seeing the world the way Scripture calls us to see the world and ourselves. So just a handful of, um, you know, basic Christian uh, postures or, you know, biblical ways of thinking to sort of shape our responses to these kinds of dynamics, if, we, if I could sort of point in a hopeful direction or a positive way forward. Um, I think it's worth doing a lot of thinking about the, the difference between having a kingdom of God identity and having an American identity. Uh, American ideologies uh, tell us that, you know, you, you get what you work for, um, seek to be upwardly mobile, always be improving, always be building, um, seek to get all you can. Uh, there's there's a range of American ideologies that foster individual selfishness. I mean, we could just you know list these on and on. Um, it's helpful to discern these and then to think about how kingdom identities situate us differently. The kingdom is always bringing high the lowly and it's always bringing low the high. There's that there's that social leveling that is going on. It's not this endless quest for upward mobility. Uh, but when we resist that social leveling, we show where our loyalties lie. But being loyal to King Jesus entails participating in communities that resist the corruptions of our wider culture by purposefully creating social dynamics that are arranged according to the kingdom of God. And that reality has to work its way deep into our imagination, um, which will affect a lot of how we see ourselves, a lot of how we see our jobs and our careers and what we deserve, and also how we view our uh, posture of responsibility toward those who are marginalized um, or who are mistreated. They are people that God regards equally with us, and that equality and partnership has to actually take uh, concrete form economically, politically, socially, etc. Um, the way that America has arranged us all, you know, with segregated communities and divided communities, um, has really just, you know, is going to make that a massive challenge. Um, yeah, that's 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 just massive. Uh, keep in mind uh, the cultivation of an identity shaped by the cross and let that reality do its work on your imagination and just shove it into the far corners of how, of all of your thinking about everything. Um, so relevant to this discussion, uh, we're, we're sort of tempted to protect ourselves. Um, but the cross calls us away from self-protection. Um, it calls us to self-giving love on behalf of others. It calls us to weakness, not to power grabbing. Um, it calls us to seek out those who are suffering and seeing how we might creatively bring relief, uh, how we might listen, uh, how we might give up power and how we might share power and form partnerships and how we might uh, grow in compassion. And you know, speaking of compassion, um, in so many of these uh, conversations, I just keep going back to Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3 about putting on a heart of compassion, cultivating the feelings of compassion, um, because we don't have them naturally. I, as a man, just don't have those feelings of compassion for what it's like to be a woman in our culture. I don't have those feelings um, of what it's like to be a black person or a black woman or a Latinx person or an indigenous person in this culture. 
Um, but Paul calls us to the work of actively exploring and learning what it is like for others to inhabit our national culture, what it is like for others to inhabit our organizational cultures. And that's a work of imagination and listening and discerning um, so that we can think about how we respond, how we interrupt um, corporate dynamics of injustice. Uh, but the, 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 the starting point is putting on that heart of compassion. And for white Christians, that means cultivating listening, active listening, uh, to listen like God listens, uh, to, the, to listen to the people God listens to. Remember, God shuts his ears to those who um, participate in systems of injustice, and he hears the cries of the marginalized and the mistreated. So get the resources, read, um, follow black women on Twitter. There are, there are places where um, people in other social locations are having conversations about what it's like for them to inhabit various organizational structures. It's really eye-opening. The resources are out there. And uh, don't give in to fear or fear-mongering. Um, even if they are evangelical leaders telling you you should be afraid of this or people on TV or national leaders, see fear-mongering for what it is. It's uh, the lure uh, to develop a hard heart and to resist the call of God to open our hearts, to open our ears, and to open our eyes to suffering communities um, that our culture has taught us to ignore and that our culture has taught us are normal. It's normal that there are these massive disparities um, economically. It's normal that these communities have less. So we have scientific theories that justify them. Um, we cannot ignore uh, situations of suffering because God doesn't. And he, when he encounters people who ignore that, uh, he calls them not my people. So voices that call us to fear immigrants, black people, um, that is tremendously uh, threatening to Christian identity. We need to um, listen to people of color uh, to take note of injustice in our culture. Uh, because we have nothing to fear. We are people who are, Christians confess, they are people who are going to inherit an unshakable kingdom. So if we are fearing the loss of our property or status or power or stuff or cultural influence, we are somehow uh, not in touch with our Christian identity. Um, and as people who have taken up, taken up the cross, we hold our place in this world lightly, we hold it loosely, and uh, we have to recognize that calls to fear our calls away from the cross. And um, always remember that uh, the rhetorical target of the Word of God is the people of God. We are the ones that Scripture is confronting, um, that it is uh, exposing, and that um, God longs to redeem and reshape and reform and to bless. So we need to situate ourselves as its target and let the searching Word of God do its work, including the rich tradition of passages um, on economic justice and on structural realities. And all of this is to say, when there are um, analytical tools out there that are doing a similar work of analyzing how power really works and exposing how unjust dynamics work, um, we are putting ourselves, when we engage those tools, uh, we are putting ourselves 
in a situation where we could see things in scripture more clearly and then end up seeing how we can embody those in our communities. And we are opening ourselves up uh, to the hopeful reality of being transformed by God's word. Well, that is episode 10 of this podcast. Like I said before, I never thought anybody would ever listen to this thing, but I've gotten some good feedback and I do very much appreciate it. Um, Man, today, so much sunshine, such a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.